welcome to The Last Thing I Saw. I'm your host, Nicholas Rapold. One of the year's best films about culture is Listening to Kenny G, directed by Penny Lane and now available on streaming. If the name Kenny G sets off alarm bells in your head, rest assured that this is not a goofy movie about something so bad it's good, or that it pushes a case for Kenny G as an unsung master. Instead, Lane's fascinating portrait crystallizes a number of insights about the way culture and taste work, and it inspires further questions about the many assumptions and absurdities surrounding the subject. So, last month, I interviewed the director on the occasion of her film's screening as opening night at Doc NYC and as a selection of IDFA, all of which followed its world premiere at the Toronto Film Festival. As a bonus, Lane also had a little to say about some recent viewing she's been doing of early reality shows. Listening to Kenny G is part of Bill Simmons' Music Box series and can be seen on HBO Max. Welcome to The Last Thing I Saw. As uh, people who have listened to uh, my Toronto podcast will remember, I was a huge fan of Listening to Kenny G, directed by Penny Lane, and that makes it a perfect time for Penny Lane time. So uh, without further ado, uh, welcome, Penny. Hello. Thank you for having me. Thanks for coming on. And for Penny Penny Lane time. I'm always happy to provide yeah. <laughs> Penny Lane time. <laughs> yeah, it's a great, it's a great, it's a good time. <laughs> good time of day. Yeah, I want to try to keep from gushing over this movie just, but basically it was so sharp. I think probably on a lot of things I was just trying to figure out myself about uh, music and culture and how we talk about them and also interviewing and music documentaries in specific. Did they just come together in some different way for you or was it? Yeah, well, two things about that. First of all, um, thank you, and I'm glad you like it. <laughs> but yeah, so, you know, I don't know. If you've seen my body of work, then you know that I kind of like don't really like doing the same thing twice, like in, in any particular way. I, I yeah. hope that I'm kind of constantly like trying new things and, you know, I'm not reaching for mastery. Like mastery is not on my list of things that I'm hoping to achieve in my life. I'm just kind of always exploring. I think I'm a pretty curious person and I get bored easily. So, so yeah, so every movie is different from the one before it, but just to answer your question more directly, yes, it did come together in a very different way. Mm-hmm. In this case, you know, Bill Simmons was putting together a series of music documentaries for HBO. And the series is called Music Box. And this was, you know, two and a half years ago or something. And he had seen my last film, Hail Satan, and really liked it and asked me if I wanted to pitch him ideas for that series. He gave me some of the ideas that they were working on and I kind of didn't resonate with any of them, but I really wanted the job. And so <laughs> um, so I went off and tried to think of a music documentary that I might actually want to might actually want to watch, I should start with, but um, mm-hmm. definitely something that I actually might want to make. And so I came up with the idea to do the Kenny G film basically based on that prompt or that assignment. Yeah. And I was mm-hmm. super excited about it. So it feels like a film I could have come up with on my own and pursued on my own, but it actually came about because of this request from Bill. Mm-hmm. I, maybe I can just kind of dive into like particular, like the way it opens, for example, is really interesting. <laughs> just to begin at the beginning, like, could you talk about how you settled on, and I'm, I'm talking particularly about how 
we kind of sit down with him, with Kenny G, and I think the initial impression, I don't know if this is the impression you exactly wanted, but I sort of thought, oh, this is going to be this underappreciated um, guy who's kind of <laughs> disgruntled and, you know, that's how we're going to play at this point. But that ends up being kind of like a faint F-E-I-N-T in a way. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah. So we, yeah, the film kind of opens in this quite classic music documentary way, which is backstage with the artist before the show. (laughs) And, you know, he's getting ready and he's kind of just cracking jokes with us. And he says something in that first scene. He says, I don't think people know me. I I don't think I'm a personality to people. I think I'm a sound, Mm. which I think is actually really perceptive on his part. I think that's true. Uh, I certainly didn't know anything about him, right? I mean, I knew nothing about him. I knew that sound. I knew that sound my whole life. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Literally my whole life. Um, But I never even thought to ask any questions about who Kenny G is as an artist. Like, it never would have crossed my mind. And even when I started this project, I wasn't really thinking about him as an artist. I sort of thought about him as an object at first. Like, oh, here's this media object that I can, like, put my ideas onto, And I thought the film would be a lot more other people reacting to his music and less him talking about it. But that was just because I hadn't met him yet. And I didn't know how fruitful and weird and provocative it was going to be to like talk to him actually directly about art and his ideas about art. Yeah. So it evolved a lot from my original idea. But yeah, so then after that scene, I think what you're referring to is this very first scene after the title you know, is kind of almost a normal music documentary trope, which is, you know, the parade of experts kind of come out to discuss the subject. But in a normal music documentary, they all come out and say how great they are. Like, yeah, they're great. (laughs) They're so great. And we agree. I also agree. He's great. They're great. It's great. And and then that's the beginning. I mean, that's usually the first two minutes of like every music documentary. Exactly. So, So in this case, the critics all come out and they kind of, um, just dog him. They just completely dog Kenny G. <laughs> so I think we're, I was just trying to like, yeah, set up the idea that this would be a little bit of a different, a different form. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the most like damning phrases is, I forget who says it, but someone calls him musical furniture. Yeah, man, totally. <laughs> just part um, of the musical furniture. Yeah. yeah. And then another critic says, I just want to believe I'm better than that. <laughs> so yeah. great. That's, that's, I mean, and yeah, that's, that gets into what's also so fascinating is that how much, you know, your music allegiances are about your identity and like, you wouldn't want to be seen as like even condoning the existence <laughs> of Kenny G, right? Right. Yeah, um, totally. Um, but what I think is really interesting after that is that I don't, I don't know how it was talking with the music critics, but you kind of make them, you kind of elicit from them more thought than that, you know, like they have to actually sit there and struggle. <laughs> yes. Like, you know, I mean, what, what were those, those interviews? I mean, I'll come back to Kenny G. Yeah. Us, yeah. I'll, but what were those interviews like, you know, because I, I mean, no disrespect to Will Lehman, uh, for example, but he like comes on the screen. I'm like, Oh, you're dressed like a critic, you know? <laughs> and like, I'm expecting, you know, him to, but he, you know, you get these interesting um, responses out of them. Yeah. It was super fun. So first of all, so yeah, we interviewed, five critics, five music critics. And I picked them because I had reason to believe that they would be playful and thoughtful. So some of them had said some things about Kenny G in the past, but most of them hadn't. And I just more had the instinct that they would be fun to talk to. Mm. And so I picked them based on that. And I knew they wouldn't just come in and 
slam him and say mean stuff and, and bail. I knew that they would kind of play with me. But I always had this image in my head from the very beginning when I pitched it, where when Kenny G's music comes on, the people that I hang out with, like they just make faces. Like it's like this, <laughs> this, this, this distaste kind of crosses their face and you can tell their blood pressure is going up. And I always want, I was like, how do I capture that? Like, I want to see people react that way right. on camera. And then I had the idea to like actually listen to his music with the critics. And, and it really turned out to be a good idea because it really did force them to grapple with the music in a very different way than if they were just kind of speaking from their memory of the music or something. Mm, um, right. So I think that that was really fun. And it also loosened them up and like made it much more interactive and conversational and less like information delivery. Right. Yeah. They're not just there as the authority to deliver the line. They kind of have to think. They kind of sit yeah. there. You know? Yes. And, and in reality, they weren't authorities. Like they, None of them really knew anything about Kenny G. <laughs> right. That's true. Yeah. And that's that's also great because you realize that's kind of a big blind spot. Yes, it kind of is. I mean, if you like this was part of my my impetus to make it. I mean, I, I had watched the Ken Burns jazz documentary, um, oh, wow. you know, a, a long time ago. And it's noticeable that, you know, there's no Kenny G in that documentary. And I get why. Like, it's not like I'm arguing that he should be in there necessarily, but he is arguably the most famous living jazz musician. <laughs> so it yeah. seems like you've got to grapple with that at some point, you know? Yeah. It's interesting even just thinking about his music as how you would categorize it, because um, that's something that I think the movie also is, is really good on, you know, how his music and his approach evolved in the eighties. Really? I mean, in, in kind of the classic like music label way of like, what are people responding to, which is something like we don't always engage with. Like when I hear his music, I don't even know if I think jazz anymore. I don't know what I think when when I hear his music. It's like it's like beyond jazz. It's like it is, yeah. It's so it's so he created he created a sound that then was copied by an entire industry. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Kenny Kenny G's success led to the formation of a smooth jazz radio format. That was the first radio format that had been invented in like 40 years. Like it was, and then it like took over the country. I mean, smooth jazz was like the most popular thing going for about 10 years there. I guess another thing I kept on tripping over is like, I don't know if you had this, if you ever watched like a series of movies you're really not into. I mean, this sometimes happens in festivals, for example, you just haven't connected with one. And then I said in my head, I'm like, well, what is good? You know, like yeah. <laughs> you get, it's like wandering in the desert. I start getting disoriented. Um, and then <laughs> finally you see something you connect with and you're like, oh, okay. Yeah, I know. But like with Kenny G, it's the same thing. You know, I start wondering like, what is good? Maybe I don't, maybe I don't even know um, at a certain point, but it, that's what this movie avoids. It kind of avoids the good or the bad of it. And then ends up just thinking about the idea, like partly about the idea of, I don't want to say taste because I'm actually not sure it talks about taste. What do you, what's your thoughts on like the idea of taste? Well, what's funny about that, Nick, is that the word taste was so central to my mission statement from the beginning. And somehow in the, the final weeks of editing, I was like, weird, the word taste isn't even in here anywhere. Oh, wow. And so it ended up not being in there um, in that kind of literal way. Like nobody says the word taste, but that was kind of like the point. Like the movie was about taste. It was about the fundamental problem of people like you and me who 
you know, perhaps with good reason, believe that our taste is kind of superior or should have some kind of ju- have some kind of power <laughs> in the world, you know? <laughs> but knowing, because if you've thought about it for two seconds, you know that that is, you know, that these these criteria that we use for judging art are subjective. It doesn't mean they're not meaningful or important, but it's just opinion. It's just taste at the bottom of it. So for me, like that was always something that I was very aware of when I was an art professor because I, w- I was right. sort of like grading students' art projects and it was just the most fundamentally uncomfortable position. Like <laughs> having power in that way, you know, that's like a way that I can execute power in the world based on my own subjective ideas about art was so uncomfortable, oh, you yeah. know? And, and I guess you do it all the time. So you surely relate <laughs> to that, you know? It's weird. It's a weird yeah. feeling. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> I know, I know. If if I think about it too much, I I start sweating. Um, I mean, I mean, I basically that is to say, like I take it like as a big responsibility. And sometimes when I see like other critics kind of like swaggering more than I do, I'm just like, yeah, yeah just just not my style. I, I mean, like I have strong opinions. Of course, um, that's part of your job. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I guess to be honest, it's like I don't know. You just kind of have to look at what's in front of you, and that's that's what I feel like the movie the movie is constantly doing. It doesn't settle, you know. It really doesn't right. settle. And I love that about it. Thank you. But even, even as he keeps giving you a lot of reasons that you might, you know, <laughs> you know, like like, and and this this is one of the like the boldest things too is. I forget this thing. This is also early on, but I have it jotted down that he just he just says like in the first five minutes, I don't know if I love music that much, right? <laughs> yeah. So okay, <laughs> I like so the first yeah, it's the first thing you hear when he sits down for his interview. Um, so you know, we meet the critics. The critics are kind of just like, this is terrible. What is there to say? It's just furniture. It's just wallpaper. Mm. I'm I think I'm better than this, you know. And then. Ben Ratliff says, what is there to say? I don't know. <laughs> what is there to say? <laughs> you know, so then we bring Kenny in, right? And I, the very first question I ask Kenny, you hear me off camera asking him, my first question is, what do you love about music? Which, by the way, for me, this is like a reference because this is the final scene of the movie Almost Famous. <laughs> oh, wow. Uh-huh. So, yeah. you know, this kid's chasing this rock star around for the whole movie and he's trying to get an interview with him and he finally gets the interview with him <laughs> and he points the recorder at this guy and he says, what do you love about music? And Russell, the rock star, leans forward with this like sparkle in his eye and he says, to begin with everything. And then the movie ends, right? And it's this fantastic like rock and roll moment. Right. Um, and so I don't know if somehow I thought I wanted to ask Kenny that question first, but I didn't know what he would say. <laughs> I certainly didn't know he was going to say, I don't love music. <laughs> I mean, it's like, I don't know. It's kind of like almost the most damning line in the movie, but it, it comes across as sort of a throwaway because it's so early. <laughs> But yeah, it's quite jarring, isn't it, to hear? <laughs> oh, it really is. Yeah. And because it also doesn't sound, yeah, it, it, it could be throwaway, but it doesn't entirely. It's like some part of him that's true. I mean. Oh, yeah. That's also like how I love the movie starts out with an image of like the underappreciated, you know, whatever, platinum selling <laughs> guy who also doesn't like what he's doing. Like he's going to be like, this is going to turn into a picture of Billy Joel or something like this. <laughs> but that's that also doesn't happen because you kind of the way the movie fleshes out. Well, tell me if this makes sense to you. Yeah. I ended up viewing him as kind of like the eternal good pupil. Right. And that's why I also loved, you know, going back to high school with him, which yep. is kind of like a, 
you know, you think you're going to know what's going to happen. But for me, that kind of was like a key thing because I yeah. felt like he's, he's still somehow back to like performing well for someone, you know? Oh, absolutely. I'm glad you picked up on that because that was the reason we went back to his high school. In my mind, he never left that practice room. Like he's oh, still wow. there. Like his, yeah. his ideas about art were completely formed <laughs> in the practice room in high school at age 15 or whatever it was. And they truly have not changed since then. <laughs> truly. Yeah. Yeah. So and when it, you say he's the eternal pupil, I mean, you might say like he thinks he's the greatest student, but really, he never really learns. Like it's, there's something so fundamentally odd about it. Like his kind yeah. of, um, the, the band that in which he is working as an artist is so narrow. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's, it's endlessly striking. Yeah. And yet, I mean, I, I have like this, you know, grudging admiration for, for him as just. Oh, me too. Yeah. You know, because he, he does, he clearly tries to adapt and you have, you know, him like trying to ace Twitter in a way, get, <laughs> get an A on the Twitter test. And, yes. and he kind of seems to do it, you know? Oh, and yeah. He, I mean, I am kind of impressed, you know, in a kind of like a Madonna kind of way. Okay, here's someone who's just like and keeps on going somehow. He's a survivor. He is. And he's also a really hard worker, you know? And, and yeah. I, it, I basically like what one of the things I'm happy about with how the film is being received is that people have very, very different views of who this character is. And I really am mm. glad because that's kind of what I wanted. I found him so paradoxical and I just loved being around him and I smiled from ear to ear but I also thought he was such a weird alien um (laughs) and it was so strange to me that the more questions I asked or the closer I looked at the at the work that he makes like the less was there Mm. and that I found that so disturbing (laughs) but then I was also like I love Kenny he's amazing you know and like his fans love the music and isn't that nice? I mean, so I just kind of like, didn't like, there was no, as you said earlier, there was no settling. Like I was never like, so I tried to structure the film in a way where mm-hmm. if you're kind of like increasingly hating him, like the movie should work for you. But if you're kind of like being won over to him, then like the movie should work for you too. Uh-huh. So I tried to just make it like more and more Kenny, like as it went on. And so that final scene where he's describing these movies that he has written scores for, that he knows he's going to win the Academy Award for, and he's going to write music that you're going to think is Beethoven or Brahms or Bach, you know, and it, you're not even going to be able to tell the difference. Um, you know, this to me is like maximum Kenny. And so that's how that ended up in the last scene, like maximum charming, but also maximum like egocentric. And I don't want to say delusional. I want to say like, what, like just so confident, like so self-confident that it's like, you've just, I've never seen anything like that. Yeah. And I mean, that, that's, that's how it, another way it's kind of different from, uh, you know, the public presence of a lot of, artists or musicians is that they don't quite package their self-confidence this way I guess is how <laughs> I know I know um, it's pretty it's really something yeah he's quite happy to just to put put that out there and yet people don't seem to mind I mean not that this is how we interact with fans although you do have that thing where he's sort of busily signing things and I, I don't know I mean it's sort of like let's move the merchandise kind of <laughs> yeah. Um, absolutely um i'm seen but again it's like i'm impressed by the the longevity of it and also i think he still has i, I had no idea i was going to go into this conversation like saying what i loved about kenny g but 
he still has this this kind of youthful spark to him that is kind Absolutely. of Absolutely. Yeah, he's very childlike in a way, isn't he? I mean, mm. he's just so enthusiastic and wide-eyed and just kind of very present in the moment in a way that most adults just aren't, but children are yeah. as a matter of course. Yeah, and and he's not interested in what he's not interested in and he doesn't have any neuroses like at all. <laughs> That's right. And so there's a there's my favorite thing that we didn't use in the movie. It was there was a moment in the interview where I mean we'd been talking for hours and hours, and he's just like, "I never get mad at anyone, and I don't mind the criticism." And like he's just like you know happy, happy all the time. And I was just so frustrated. And at some point, I kind of was like, "Come on, Kenny! Like, don't you have any demons?" And he paused for like a long time, and he said. What's a demon? <laughs> Which really, genuinely, he didn't know what I meant. So I explained it and he was like, oh, yeah, no, no, I don't have any of those. But it's, this is like, it's shocking, right? Because what right. drives an artist? I mean, when I think about my friends that are artists, like what, we're all driven by just like neuroses. Like, I don't know, right. I don't even know, you know, things that torment you inside. Like this film for me was about like trying to understand this like, you know, very uneasy feeling that I live with, you know, in terms of, you know, kind of feeling like I'm part of this like cultural elite, but sort of feeling uncomfortable mm. with it. Yeah. Um, you know, that's, that's a neurosis that I have, right? I mean, just Kenny doesn't have any of those. He's not doing that. He's not like working out any deep seated, like uh, schisms within himself. He's just like, this is nice. I like it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to keep doing it. I'm good. Yes. I'm going to work hard. And I'm going to um, keep working at it. And I'm going to get better and better at it. And he has this kind of like desire. But, you know, when I was an art teacher, as I mentioned this earlier, yeah. my students, you know, if you ask them like, oh, why are you in this class? What do you love about art? You know, the kinds of answers that I would get, well, when I was at Colgate, which is kind of more of a like normie sort of school, the students would say like, well, art is great if it's beautiful and if it makes me feel good, like makes me feel relaxed or good and it's a good demonstration of a, a difficult skill mm -hmm. so like those were the criteria that my students were using and they'd just be like they'd always be like why are you showing us all this weird art you know <laughs> are you ever going to yeah. show us any normal art and I was always like what is this fucking normal art right. that they're thinking like yeah. I have no idea what you're talking about but they don't necessarily mean Kenny G per se but they mean Kenny G. I mean, they mean like, you know, it's it's beautiful. It makes me feel nice. And it seems like it's hard to do. And he's doing it well, right? So he's like playing all these notes. And <laughs> kind of like, never mind if it's musical. It's right. just like a, a, a sort of um, athletic feat to like get that many notes that quickly. Right, right. I think that is also part of what, what was ripping me about, about it is what is the purpose of art for people? And, and mm -hmm. this, you know, and this ends up, I mean, I end up writing a lot about movies where I have to be aware that not a lot of people are seeing them ultimately. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that comes up with the students that, that you, you've taught, the sense that the art should reach a lot of people. And if it's not, right. then there's something not, not right. working right. Yeah. Well, certainly like, you know, when I was in art school, the prevailing concept, which I'm sure is still true, you know, coming from the professors mm -hmm. is that, you know, the more popular it is, the the worse it is probably like, you know, it's kind of makes it more suspicious. Uh, so, you know, there was a real like anti-populist sort of attitude in fine arts school, which I was very rebellious against. I never really vibe with that. 
Right. But then you can take it too far in the other direction where if it's popular, it must be good, which is, you know, also not something that I think is true Mm. or that I can vibe with. Um, So those things are really tricky. And I guess like for me, one thing to keep in mind for this topic is that music is very different from like cinema or poetry Mm. or novels or whatever, because music permeates our lives in a very different way. Mm. And there's so many different like use cases for music. Like, are you setting the mood at a party? Are you, uh, you know, studying or working? Are you dancing? Are you trying to seduce somebody? Um, You know, there's so many different ways that music works its way into our lives that I think that it just functions differently. And so that was kind of where I started from because I was like, okay, a music documentary. Well, what makes music special is I think it's so tied to our personal experiences and just in such a deep way. Mm-hmm. And you listen to these things over and over and over again, right? Like we all have this. Like, right, yeah. you know, you think about that summer after freshman year of college and it's like all about OK Computer. You just remember <laughs> like walking around with OK Computer in your ears or whatever. So like, you know, it becomes, you know, not to be corny, but the soundtrack to our lives. In a way that like, I love certain movies or novels or poems, but they don't become the soundtrack to my life. Like it doesn't work that way. So I think it gets tied up with our identities even more so that those critical judgments feel more hurtful, I think, to people. I really think people get so hurt when people shit on music that they love. I think it hurts more than maybe again, like some, some other art forms. Yeah. One thing I find that's interesting that maybe is is has been starting to function in the way uh, you're describing for music is I mean again I'm I'm sorry we have to talk about this but like superhero movies <laughs> I knew you were gonna say that because it's it's the it's like the obvious analog you know yeah people also kind of rally behind that um, in in a certain way that's is is not really recognizable to me when I think of. Like my fandom, let's say when I was a teenager for, you know, I like Schwarzenegger movies. I'm still kind of obsessed with T2. Um, mm-hmm. And, but that, yeah, that is one, one analog that, that comes to mind. Well, and it's, I'm glad you brought that up because like, you know, you know, the phrase like let people enjoy things. Have you heard this? Yes. <laughs> so this is like, you know, I'm assuming you have, cause you're a critic, right? So. Yeah, that put me out of it, right out of job, you know, if I, <laughs> Totally. But it's, it's quite striking because, okay, so Kenny G kind of comes from the nineties, right? Like that's the height of his career Mm -hmm. and his ubiquity and fame. And when you go back and you look at how critics talked about, let's say Kenny G or other, you know, popular kitschy art forms, they were really mean. Like in a way that you would, it's it's almost jarring because the pendulum towards like poptimism and let people mm. enjoy things has swung totally in the other direction to the point right. where now critics get yelled at if they criticize a Marvel movie, right. which is literally their job. So <laughs> it's it's odd. It's It's an interesting kind of moment to make this film because- I didn't really know that when I started it. Like I sort of mm-hmm. thought, okay, so if the research question was, why does Kenny G make people mad? The question should have been, why did he make people mad? Because I don't think he really makes people mad now. Mm-hmm. But 20 years ago, as you see in the film, he really made people mad. Right. And they were very vocal about it in a way that just doesn't feel contemporary to me. Do you know what yeah. I mean? No, I totally know what you mean. I mean, if, if someone went, if someone went after Taylor Swift the way that Pat Metheny went after 
Kenny G, I mean, their career would be over. Yeah, that kind of counter identity doesn't exist in the same way, you know, where you stake your identity on not selling out, which is a concept which does not, I don't know that it exists. It it does not exist at all. I'm here to tell you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's not even like a legible concept to my students. <laughs> they look at you with just puzzlement. Really? Yeah, because, you know, the whole way that you get going as an artist is to be just a hustler. Like, you can't just, like, you know, appeal to gatekeepers anymore. Like, you, you've got to start with selling out. Like, it's the beginning. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> you, have to make, you have to make a Twitter page, you know? Yeah, and it's, it's like the, the marketing, I don't know, just having to take on that extra share of labor, too, of, like, mm-hmm. the self-marketing is is kind of crazy and it's all like high stakes i mean it's really instructive to hear about your students too because getting things off the ground getting funding you have you know experience in, in, in that to like just manifest your art in the world that's also why there's something infuriating about kenny g because he just, <laughs> he just doesn't he, he's having no troubles no um, no 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 troubles at all i mean yeah. just to be clear uh one of the things i learned in making the film was that he was one of the first 10 investors in starbucks so okay it, it turns out that really just all the money he made from like the 75 million records sold like really chump change probably to him <laughs> Yeah, I hope you got some tips from him. <laughs> I did. Actually, I did. I didn't put any of them into practice, but if I wanted to, I could probably be a millionaire. <laughs> <laughs> there was one other thing I definitely wanted to touch on. I also like how the movie broaches the subject of race mm. in culture and music and, and how, how that shapes what how music history has unfolded and what happens to musicians. And I'm kind of curious, I want to hear what you think of his response, Um, because for me, I felt like he was purposely answering a different question than you asked. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So, you know, so I I, I don't remember, like, um, I guess the question I'd asked him must have been something like, do you think that being white helped you in your career? I think I, I think Mm -hmm. I felt that it was important to like directly answer, ask him that because I, the reason being that I knew he'd never thought about it. Like I knew he didn't, mm. I knew that he didn't know the the correct answer to that question. You know what I mean? Right. Like he's so, he's checked out of culture. He doesn't like know. <laughs> he doesn't know about white privilege, you know? Right. So, so I was very interested to see what he would say to that question. So he sort of starts by saying like, no, I don't think it had anything to do with my career. But I think maybe because I made a skeptical face at him or something, it's always hard to know like what the interviewer right. was doing in that moment that might have like guided him a little. Yeah. Um, but maybe I made a skeptical face or something because he kept thinking about it. And then he said, well, let me think about like pop radio in 1986. You know, um, that's when he had his first hit. Right. And, and he said, you know, if I had been a black guy, do I think Clive Davis would have signed me? Yeah, probably. But do I think pop radio would have played my song or would they have said like, Oh, we'll just leave that to the R and B stations, which is, you know, uh, so I, and he says, Oh yeah. in that one way, I think probably it helped me. So I was amazed actually, cause I feel like I yeah. saw him have mm-hmm. like a tiny little moment of progress or, you know, or just like having mm-hmm. thought about something for the first time. And then he kind of like got somewhere with it. Yeah. I'm not going to oversell that moment, but in, you know, in terms of like what it means in the film, it's not like everything's leading up to that or something. It's just kind yeah. of in the middle, but nonetheless, like, you know, as an interviewer, you really live for those moments because you, I saw something happen. I, I mean, he usually is just kind of, as you can tell, I'm sure 
you know, telling stories he's told a hundred times before, you know, and he's just Mm -hmm. kind of saying things that he is comfortable saying. And I I saw him maybe kind of change his mind a little bit in a way that Mm -hmm. was quite, quite interesting. You kind of live for those moments as an interviewer. No, it's it, it it definitely was fascinating. I mean, maybe what on maybe it's that I as soon as I heard that I wanted more. Maybe that's what my right. reaction really is. Yeah, and I'm you know, in, in the raw footage, like in the interview, we kind of went on, but it just got muddled because it's such a muddled topic. Mm-hmm. Like you know, it's like okay, well, what does it mean that you know Kenny played in bands when he was started out that were like all black bands? Like he was like the, the white guy in the black club for like mm-hmm. ten years, you know. Right. And then there was this whole other layer to it where, you know, the the music industry, which is not Kenny, right? It's like a whole other system was so different in ways that are hard to even get into. It's like, okay, like, what does it mean that there was such a thing as the black music charts, that that was like a separate category, like on billboard, like it was like billboard would be like pop music, country music, black music, you know? And that, and what does it mean that Kenny was like at the top of the black music charts for 10 years, you know? And, and what does it mean that like so much of his, you know, really big fan base was, was black, you know, especially in the eighties. Like, you know, if you talk to people who grew up in kind of middle class black homes in the eighties, this was like the soundtrack to their lives. Mm -hmm. It's an odd, weird story. And honestly, like, you know, another person probably could have made a whole film just about that, but this kind of just became a scene, you know, and like a gesture amongst many other gestures in the film, because that's just kind of the kind of filmmaker that I am. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I think it's also great, because thinking about him as as, as a musical furniture or wallpaper or what have you, I mean, it, it's still striking to me that when I go to, you know, a lot of drugstores, or just certain musical environments that are supposed to be generic. <laughs> the music is not generic. It's like still like 80s. As far as those generic environments are concerned, they want to just skip over what actually happened for the next the 30 years after that. So I also found that like, yeah, that, that kind of interesting because he's somehow is still. Um, yeah, you're right. It's still you're, you're kind of right. Yeah. Whereas, you know, obviously like hip hop has long ago surpassed, you know, any idea of rock, like, you know, so. Right. Um, both in numbers and even, yeah. Totally. And in and, and influence. I mean, the idea, yeah. like, again, talking to a young person now about the fact that, like, pop radio and MTV did not play Black artists right. is, like, describing, like, you're on Mars. Like, what? <laughs> what do you mean? Like, um, like, do you remember, like... MTV had, um, so Aerosmith did a song with Run DMC. Yes. <laughs> and this is the only reason that there was a rap song on MTV. It was like the first rap song that had any play on MTV. And it was because of Aerosmith. I mean, I it's, <laughs> it's just hard. Again, that wasn't that long ago, Nick. Yeah. Yeah. Once once you pick at that thread. It... <laughs> yeah. Uh, again, it's a, a kind of a whole thread that needs to be dealt with and like dealt yeah. with in a more systematic way than I could do in this film. Yeah. I just wanted to kind of ask in general, like if I were making a course in like music documentary, if mm. this this would be, uh, I don't know if this would be the first or like the last, <laughs> you know, in it because I think it's important in in, in that in that way as like a, for like decoding how these work. But I'm curious for you, what are your favorite music or even just like mm-hmm. culture documentaries? Yeah. Oh, there's so many in the category of culture that it's like too many. But when I think about music documentaries, you know, one of my favorites was, um, did you see Dig? Oh, I remember Dig. Yeah. Uh Yeah. A long time ago, right? On on Timoner. Timoner. uh 
that that film was really special because yeah. you know she's doing this kind of dual portrait of two bands that come from exactly the same place and like the same culture and they're friends and one becomes really famous mm-hmm. and one becomes really respected and <laughs> watching that play out is it's a good example of how you can like make a music documentary that's not a biography mm-hmm. at all um, and it's not meant to be like a sort of career retrospective. It's it was it was just like a, a story, like a good story that yeah. was revealing of so many things about humanity. And then Shirley Clark made an Ornette Coleman documentary oh, yeah. that is amazing. It was totally amazing. It was such a great marriage of like form and content. Like it was just completely mm. nuts mm-hmm. in the way that a film about Ornette Coleman should be. I mean, <laughs> there's just no attempt made to be clear or, you know, explain things. It's just yeah. like an experience. And then similarly, there was a film a few years ago about Milford Graves called Milford Graves Full Mantis that was a little bit similar to the Ornette Coleman film in the sense that the filmmaker really took on like a whole aesthetic world that was, you know, coming emanating from this artist and just it felt so, uh, again, perfect for the subject, you know? Yeah, I, it's almost like I think in some ways jazz documentaries they're not participating in the same like rise and fall economy that like pop culture docs are. I don't know. I don't know either. I mean, I, I don't know. Music documentaries in general, it's tough to get me to watch them. I just, I just kind of ass- assume unless someone tells me otherwise that I could like tell you what exactly was going to happen in it. Like every, <laughs> do you know what I mean? And so if I hear something, you know, I just, I just hear things and so people were like, Oh, you should watch the sparks doc. And I was like, really? Should I? And then I did. And I was like, yeah, I get it. Like, it's good. Like it's got a whole spirit to it. That's special. Yeah. Um, yeah. But generally speaking, there's no reason that I would watch a music documentary at all. I just, yeah. it, it's not a form. It really biographical documentaries in general is not mm-hmm. like the subject of the film is insert name of person. Mm-hmm. That's tough to get me to watch. But f- for me, it's like also like then it's a bit humbling because then I made one and mm. I had to do some of the things that I like didn't, that I like swore I wouldn't do, you know? Like, <laughs> you know, cause you just kind of have to at some point. You're like, well, I have to explain like, where he was born. And I like probably need to mention something about who his parents were, you know? So I tried to do it just like a little bit, like just the amount that felt necessary. But even then I was like, Mm -hmm. yeah, music docs are tough. And then the licensing stuff, this is a more practical thing, but the licensing Mm -hmm. stuff is very restrictive. I mean, it's super expensive to put the music in. And yes, uh, Kenny had no say over the movie creatively, but he probably could have destroyed it by just saying no to the license request. So even when you're in a situation like I was in where, you know, this was a completely independent film, you know, Kenny was not a producer on the film or he didn't have any say, there's Mm -hmm. still a sense that you have to play ball. So, you know, and, and, you, and you also mm-hmm. feel like you have to do fan service. Like the fan service just sort of feels like a requirement. Mm. So yeah, music docs are tough. I, didn't, I don't think I 100% got out of the box with this. So I'm thinking for my next one, I really mm. just don't want it to be like about a person or a band. Like I want to try to find, yeah, like, you know, like the story mm-hmm. that, was, that, that Andy found with Dig. Like I want to find right. like a, a good story that has like a music backdrop to it or something. And I think that's really hard to do because you just get into the mindset of like running down names of bands you like or something. And I'm like, <laughs> this is not getting me anywhere. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, it's almost like there's something liberating in choosing someone that you didn't have. Oh, 
Totally. And that's the only way I could imagine doing it. But now I'm like, well, I can't do that again, can I? I <laughs> like, I probably can't make another documentary about a, about a musician that like I don't like and people I know don't like, because then that would be repetitive. <laughs> I don't know what to do now. But like when I think about like, um, well, when I think about like the Velvet Underground doc, which I loved, oh, yeah. I, thought it was, I thought it was just so terrific, really great. And I watched it twice in a 24-hour period. I was so taken with it. But, you know, when I think like, do I think I would have had the the chutzpah to think I was cool enough to make like the Velvet Underground <laughs> documentary? The answer is no. So when I think about like cool bands that I think are genuinely amazing, like I would be like too afraid to try to make a movie right. about them. <laughs> like, I'm not cool enough. <laughs> that's That's funny. I hadn't thought of it that way. But yeah, I guess Todd Haynes is like, well, I always thought like, the cojones to do the Bob Dylan movie in the first place. Like, exactly. <laughs> yeah. You know. And good for him. I love that film. Love, love, love it. And, and I'm oh, glad yeah. he did it. But but I just genuinely would never have made that film, no matter how yeah. much I love it. Like, I can see how, like, it just would never have come from me in a million years. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't know. I'm a I'm, uh, big fan of, of this documentary. and um, Thank you. I, and now you have me thinking, like, what would be, like, another thing like it? You know, another thing like Please, that. feel free. <laughs> feel free to send me ideas because I'm pretty sure there will be a season two for this series. And, I again, I would like the job. So I've got to come up with something. Yeah. <laughs> I've got to come up with something. Yeah, or you could do, like, um, I wonder if, like, um, film scores would count. Like, do, like... I thought about that, but there was a really big film about film scores a couple of years ago. Oh, wait, so, it was? Like, damn it. What was it called again? Yeah. Ugh. I don't I'll know. It, it was just like something that was, you know, sufficiently good or, oh, you yeah. know, released widely enough where it would be seen as duplicative. Oh, but okay. I see. Yeah. yeah. But maybe there's a specific film score person. I don't know. Yeah. We don't need to turn your podcast into me brainstorming <laughs> my next music documentary. Danny El like the Danny Elfman journey. Um, the Danny Elfman story, exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, let's uh, do the um, finale, uh, or sorry, that's really grand, grandiose. <laughs> Just the final. The grand, the grand finale. Yes. <laughs> last question, which is, uh, what was the last thing uh, you saw? And if it's if it's uh, if it's TV, uh, that's great. I'm also curious if, if there was a recent movie you saw too. Yeah. Well, I'll give you two answers because the last movie I saw was The Velvet Underground and we already talked oh, yeah. about it. And I just flipped out. I saw it in Lincoln Center with that amazing sound. Yeah. Like, you know, the room was shaking. Like I felt like the nails were going to fall out of the ceiling. It was so intense, <laughs> like f full body experience. Um, and then I saw it the next night at Film Forum because I knew the editors would be there and I just oh, cool. really wanted to meet the editors and ask them a million questions. Mm -hmm. And one thing that I'll say that I learned from them that's so cool mm -hmm. is that, you know, you go, it's like a two hour film and you actually go about an hour before you hear a Velvet Underground song like like a track. That's true. But the whole first hour is they're creating this original score out of various stems. Do you know what a stem is? It's like the oh. it's like the individual tracks from a session. So it's like, you know, I've got the horns on one stem and the strings on a stem and the drone on a stem, the drums. Oh. And they, they took those stems and they kind of remixed them and created a score so that you were 
in the sonic world mm-hmm. of the Velvet Underground for that whole hour, even though you literally hadn't heard a Velvet Underground song, oh, wow. which I thought really was cool. so cool and smart. Yeah. Okay, so the last thing I watched that wasn't that, though, was season one of Survivor from <laughs> the year 2000. <laughs> and I've been on this kind of kick of watching early reality TV, mm. like TV, reality TV from that first big blockbuster era, right. which is now 20 years ago, 20, 21 years ago. And it is like, it just feels like such simpler times. Like we were all like, who are these crazy people? They must be mentally ill. Like there was no sense that this could like become a career or anything. Like it's just like a, like the purpose of the exercise was so different and it just feels so much more naive and the image quality is so terrible. It's just like, it's, it's, it feels like, again, it feels just like I can't believe how much reality television has changed in 20 years. Yeah. And there's something about that early period that's very interesting to me. So I've been watching all the kind of like season one of The Bachelor, season one of Survivor, mm. season one of The Apprentice, you know, and it's just like kind of blowing my mind. <laughs> Highly recommend it. What, what's the like <laughs> biggest difference you're you're noticing? It, 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 I almost wonder, after people have watched like 15 years of that, do you, like there's almost must be a shorthand by now. <laughs> well, that's, that's the biggest difference is that now it's like, okay, so I think of now is like the professional era because the oh, people yeah. that are going on these shows now grew up watching these shows. Right. Nobody goes on Survivor without knowing everything about Survivor. (laughs) And the same is true with The Bachelor and all of their shows. And so season one is like the experimental era where everyone's like, what are we doing here? Like, what is Mm -hmm. this? And, And the performance styles haven't been worked out. So you've got one person who's clearly doing a kind of pro wrestling thing where they've created a persona and they're going for it and having fun. But another person just seems to be like having a good time, being themselves, like not really trying to get screen time. And it's very weird to have them all like colliding together. So yeah, I think it's just the naivete. Like mm-hmm. the purpose of being on Survivor in the year 2000 was just completely unknown. Right. Whereas now, look, I mean, you can either use it to start your influencer career or, you know, whatever else. Like there's a kind of obvious sort of way that it feeds into the rest of your career because of social media. So mm-hmm. being yeah. on Survivor now, like maybe largely is about getting Instagram followers, mm-hmm. which is about getting sponsorships. And so there's kind of like a, a professionalization of it that I think is totally different. Yeah, yeah. And 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 now you you could become like a tabloid star without actually having a career beyond that. Right, exactly. Yeah. I think it was probably really bad for your career for anyone to go on any reality television show for the first 10 years of reality right. TV. Yeah. And now it's like, great. Like, why wouldn't you? It's just no, like a plus. Yeah. Now, now it's like, it's always that line in the, in the Wikipedia entry for someone where I'm like, Whoa, he did that. I didn't even know that, you know? I like, know. Did you know? So like, I don't know if you watched the white Lotus. Yes. So you watched the white Lotus over the summer and I just loved it so much that I was like, I need yeah. more Mike white. And then I remembered that Mike White was on Survivor and I went and watched Mike White's Survivor season, which was such a trip. It was just such a trip to watch Mike White like be a Survivor contestant. Um, And that's kind of, that's actually what got me started rewatching all the old Survivor episodes because I was like, oh, I haven't really, you know, I was never like a huge fan. Like I watched a few here and there. But oh, now God. I've become like obsessed. <laughs> How far back was that? It was not that long ago. It was maybe like three or four years ago. <laughs> Well, what, what, I wonder what, what did they think putting him in? It's like, it's like he's. Well, they knew, they knew that, they knew that he was a huge super fan mm-hmm. and he was an actor. And so they correctly yeah. got, he, he has these great lines. Like, 
he, at some point he uses the phrase hoisted by my own petard, <laughs> which like no one else has ever said on reality TV ever. I'm just a hundred percent sure that Mike White is the only person to say hoisted by my own petard on Survivor. Yeah. That might be my gateway drug uh, into the, the, the complete Mike history White. of this. Yeah, Mike White. Because um, I was I was just telling someone about that he has this like pretty weird movie in his past that doesn't get talked a lot about Chuck and Buck. Do you remember that? No, I, 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 I saw that movie in a movie theater. Me too. It was <laughs> formative on my young yeah. life. I was like, whoa, whoa, what just happened? Yeah, yeah. I was thinking about that recently. Cause again, I was saying I want more Mike White. And I was like, I don't think I'm going to watch Chuck and Buck though. <laughs> That was like the era of like independent cinema where like it just was like had to be like the most disturbing, yes. most upsetting thing you could possibly think of. And that was like what was going to get programmed at the art house, you know? And so yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, you know, the kind of Todd Solon's era, you know? Right. That's when his his star was like most most ascendant then. And, and or Neil LeBute kind of churning yeah. out these oh. like- Absolutely. And, you know, and, and Lars von Trier, like there was some right. point where I was just like, I got to have a break from this. Like, this is just like, someone's got to like make a nice movie at some point. Like then I start wanting like, yeah, the Kenny G of indie cinema. Right. Like I'm like, give me something relaxing. Give yeah. me something pretty. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, that's not to get into it all again, but that's also what was interesting about Kenny G is that I don't feel like he had that like ra- secret radical first film, you know, like, Oh, no. <laughs> no, in, in fact, in fact, like, you know, some people who are like younger and cool and they're like DJs and stuff, they're like, yeah, mm. Kenny's first couple albums are amazing. And I was like, really? And then I went and listened to them and they kind of are amazing. But then you learn in my film or from just from talking to Kenny that Kenny hates those albums because they were produced by Kashif. And they're like fabulous oh, R&B cool. albums, but they have nothing to do with him. <laughs> like nothing at all. So I'm like, oh, I guess those DJs, I don't know. Should I tell them? Like, it's like. <laughs> oh, man. Thanks for, for taking taking me on my um, my, my journey through, through the, the Kenny G uh, and, and the reality show for Mark. Oh, anytime, anytime. <laughs> anytime you want to talk about Kenny G or reality television, I'm, I'm here for you. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much, Penny. And again, it's, uh, it's coming on December 2nd. You've been listening to The Last Thing I Saw with your host, Nicholas Rapold. If you like what you heard, please consider signing up at rapold.substack.com. Special thanks to the Minarets for the opening music from their song, Montserrat. Thank you for listening. <laughs> <laughs>